over the years, Jason and Bo uh, in various uh, formats. Let's get my stuff out here. Um, thank you for the time of worship. Uh, the worship band appreciated that. Always good to know that at least God knows my voice is okay. Um, please join with me in prayer as we get going here. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the work that you're doing in the world and the part of it that we get to play uh, as your people uh, distributing the word in Bakersfield and to the ends of the earth in India, in West Africa, and, and in many other places as well through our relationships, through missionaries we support. We thank you that you have a people for yourself that you've died for, that you are uh, working in right now and perfecting to the day of Christ. You do uh, mercy and kindness pursue us all the days of our lives, as we sang in that last song. And we thank you that, that you have died to make us your bride. And the topic being addressed this morning of singleness and marriage is seen in that context, that, that the marriage was your idea. Marriage was a picture of, and is a picture of your relationship with your people. So we thank you for that picture. Thank you for the role that we get to play in it. Pray that you'd help me now to uh, address these matters. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it's a pretty big assignment for this morning. Can everybody hear me? Is the sound check work and all that? Um, it's a topic I've, I've sometimes do over several weeks. It's the topic of marriage and singleness. I want to do a big overview from the scriptures, from history, and today, in our own day, what's happening with these issues. Um, first of all, I want to start with, with um, in, the, in, the, in the scriptures. So let's see how God views marriage in the Bible itself. Marriage is significant for us because it was intended to reflect God's relationship with his people. In the Old Testament, we see this very early on. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Ezekiel, in recounting how God took Israel to be his special people, from all, the, from all the nations of the earth, says this, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at an age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Elsewhere in Jeremiah, Israel's unfaithfulness to God is spoken of as adultery and the desertion of a husband. Later on, we see in Hosea, uh, this promise that when God establishes a new covenant with his covenant people, in spite of her unfaithfulness, God says, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my Baal and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So we see the Old Testament lays out this picture of God being the husband of his people and his people being a bride who was not faithful but was brought back to God in God's faithfulness. So in God as an act of faithfulness to his people, redeems his people on the cross and preserves his people into glory. In the New Testament, we see this unpacked in more detail. Ephesians 5 tells us specifically that the, was, that the husband-wife dynamic is meant to be a reflection of Christ's relationship with his people. We read in Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? For the husband is the head of the wife, 
even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The Apostle Paul, in describing his burden for the Corinthians to outgrow their carnality, says this, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband. There it is again, betrothed you to the husband. Who's the husband? Christ. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. 2 Corinthians eleven two, And finally, in Revelation 19, we see the Apostle John describe the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And he says, the bride has made herself ready for that great uh, consummation of the wedding. So we see marriage pointing to Christ and the church. This is every human marriage. Whether its participants know it or not, our marriages either preach truth about the God of the universe and how he deals with his people, or our marriages speak lies and blasphemies about how God relates to his people. We see, secondly, that God established marriage at creation. Soon after making Adam, he said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, Genesis 2.16. A few verses later, we read the words that Jesus quoted in Matthew 19 when he was asked about the permissibility of divorce. We see Jesus answer his disciples at that time, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus says that God said that. So we see that Jesus authenticates the Old Testament's being the word of God, saying this is what God's word was in Genesis. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, Matthew 19, 4 to 6. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what Christ is saying there is that the separation of husband and wife tells a lie about God because God brought them together and made them one flesh. We see from Ephesians 5 that Christ and his people are, are united, and they are not separable either. So marriage as an institution is meant to be a, a permanent lifelong bond between a man and a woman, which declares Christ's relationship with his people in a pictorial fashion. It's a metaphor, it's a drama, if you will, a play, a parable. Nevertheless, marriage as an institution is in decline in our day. So I mentioned I want to talk about marriage in, in the, uh, the Bible and history and in our day. Briefly, in our day, the, the institution of marriage is under attack. We've seen that in, in California. We've seen that in other states. We see it in a, in a variety of different laws that are passed and promoted. Uh, a couple of quotes I want to give to you from a book called God, Marriage, and Family by Andreas Kostenberger. He says this, The West's Judeo-Christian heritage and foundation have largely been supplanted by a libertarian ideology that elevates human freedom and self-determination as the supreme principles for human relationships. And that is exactly what I think we've seen in our day, is that is people view marriage as primarily a chance for, for humans to achieve self-fulfillment, uh, apart from God, apart from propagation of the human race. It's more an emotional thing for me to find fulfillment in whatever way I find that fulfillment, which is why uh, the arguments for same-sex marriage have made such 
such inroads in our culture. It's because that was already, even before that happened, we already had bought into the notion that marriage was primarily, if not exclusively, about individual fulfillment and happiness in whatever way they see fit. Uh, Kostenberger goes on to say, once God is removed as the initiator of the institution of marriage and family, the door is open to a plethora of human understandings of these terms and concepts. And in the spirit of postmodernism, no one group has the right to claim greater legitimacy than any others. Isn't that what we, we see in our day? The only mechanism to adjudicate between competing definitions, then, is not that of morality, but that of public opinion and the majority vote. So that's essentially where we're at in our day. Nevertheless, in spite of this milieu that we're in, God has ordained marriage as a parable of the permanence of his love for his people and as a significant vehicle for sanctification. For most Christian adults, and marriage has a common grace benefit for all who participate in it. On a common grace level, just from purely secular perspective, this quote from Maggie Gallagher, I think, says it, says it well. Marriage is civilization's great effort to connect sex, love, money, babies, men, women, mothers, and fathers. You think of it, marriage is the one thing we have that puts all those together. Apart from it, we have other uh, forms of relationships that don't contribute to human flourishing brief look at church history now shifting gears from that church history on the issue of singleness and marriage jesus and paul were both single uh, paul was probably a widower paul seemed to imply in first corinthians 7 that singleness was preferred it, in various things he said there in that chapter talked about remaining in the place that you were called and that he who doesn't marry doesn't sin but he who stays single does better depending on what translation you read that passage um, singleness indeed allows supreme or optimal flexibility and freedom for serving Christ. It, it does provide that environment of, of freedom. The, uh, Paul notes in 1 Timothy 5 that even young widows in his day were taking chastity vows, right? Something he wanted, Paul wanted that reserved for older widows. Yet by AD 110, we see celibates taking vows that mirrored marital vows. It was becoming quite common and they were very common by the third century by the time the roman catholic church was established uh from its infancy it held a high view of singleness and exclusively uh required singleness for all those entering the office of nun or priest and the like and that's where the monasteries came out of that tradition the tradition that said singleness is the preferred state for humanity if it, uh, for christians in particular in the Middle Ages, however, the Anglicans gave three purposes for marriage in their Book of Common Prayer, and the Puritans came out of this background as well. The three purposes were this, the procreation of children, the restraint and the remedy of sin, mutual society or mutual comfort, namely emotional intimacy, companionship, that sort of thing. The Puritans followed that tradition and taught as, that way as well, promoting a high view of marriage, promoting the goodness of marriage, as something that accomplished those three things, procreation of children, restraint and remedy of sin, mutual society or comfort. So a high view of marriage as a means to guard against sexual immorality of all sorts, the Puritans rejected the Catholic notion that sex was only lawful for procreation of children, 
and they had a high desire for children, and they welcomed many children as well. So they kind of had all those things in in balance. Let's briefly look at these three uh, purposes of marriage. I want to get a quote out here that I had before. It's right here. All right. So procreation of children. Let's first look at that. We'll look at the other two reasons as well for, for marriage. Um, our first parents were told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Barring extreme circumstances, couples should generally be open and desirous of children. It's a biblical it, and, and it's an important aspect of marriage. It's not the ultimate aspect of marriage, but it is an important aspect of marriage. The ultimate aspect of marriage is to be a picture of Christ in the church. But the, pro, the procreation of children is a, a, a big part of marriage. None of this is meant to add any pain to those unable but willing to bear children and rear children. What I'm talking about here is the desire for children needing to be a part of how people think of marriage. A hundred years ago, children were, were uh, invaluable to families because they meant help in the farm or in the family business, and they were seen as an obvious economic asset to the family. You didn't rely on the government to take care of you when you were older. You had your children to take care of you when you were older. We tend to lose that connection in our own economy in the 21st century, but it's still there. Uh, children do uh, provide additions to the labor pool. They contribute to the, common, they contribute to the common welfare of society. They take care of parents in old age. Well, that's not the only reason that God wants us to be open and welcoming of children. Children are heritage from the Lord, we're told in Psalm 127. The fruit of the womb is his reward. So God desires a godly offspring, and that's why uh, childbearing and child training are such important ministries. He desires that husbands and wives love their children and raise them up to love uh, God as well. Many can attest to the role of at least one godly parent in their own conversion. In fact, the success of college and adult ministries and street evangelism notwithstanding, all those combined do not on a percentage basis come close to contributing to salvation in the lives of people as well as much as godly parents. The majority of, of us in this room, if we were to raise our hands, who is converted through the influence of a godly parent? So a lot. It, 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 it shifts in various cultures, but the effect of it on a, on a grand scheme is, is enormous. Um, so the research is showing that what kids look for in their parents is connecting this on the faith. Transferring the faith to your children is essential as a role of, of, of a parent, as a role within marriage. As mom and dad live out the faith week in and week out, the kids are most, much more likely to take that faith and own it for themselves. Uh, more could be said about that, but it's another, another message. I just wanted to point out that Christians should not join the world in disassociating marriage from children. We are seeing a great diminishment in our day of children in marriage. And uh, we need to, I think, resist that as Christians to, to recognize that marriage is not just about our own fulfillment individually. It's about being a picture of Christ in the church and secondarily sharing that picture with others by producing children or by helping in the, in the discipling of children if we can't have them ourselves. The restraint and remedy of sin is another uh, purpose of, of marriage. Why this view that marriage is a protection from sin? Where did this come from? 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 8. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul is quoting back to them something that the, that the Corinthians had said to him. 
But Paul's responding here this way. He says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. But for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come again together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So we see that Paul uh, makes these statements about about marriage being a, a... because of temptation of sexual immorality, he promotes the goodness of marriage. He goes on to say, not as a concession, not as a command. I say, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I, Paul, wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of this kind and one of another. So that's where we see Paul most clearly talking about a gift associated with remaining single long term. Paul says that he has that gift. I wish that all were as myself am. He wishes that everybody else had that gift too, but he recognizes that the majority will not have it. And therefore he, he makes these acknowledgments that one of the benefits of marriage is that it provides this restraint and remedy from sexual immorality. It provides a channel for focused uh, attention of those passions. Marriage is the only context in which sexual intimacy can be lawfully enjoyed. Marriage provides a strong covenant fence around the relationship. It gives security and the permanence so that a man and woman can truly be naked and unashamed. If you're a young person today and you haven't yet, um, you're, you're, not, you're not in a marriage relationship yet, but you're thinking about that and you're wrestling with your own interest in the opposite sex, marriage is the place that God created for that to be enjoyed and for that to become a channel for your own sanctification. If you seek to pursue it elsewhere, it will only be a snare for you. It will only uh, ruin your life in many, many ways. Uh, so marriage and sexuality, they go together. You can't have one without the, without the other. Marriage and sex go together. Pursuing marriage only for sex is a bad idea because marriage is much, much more than, than sex. That being said, allowing a strong uh, desire for sex to inform your decision to pursue marriage is not wrong, according to 1 Corinthians 7. It is wise. Uh, as Dr. Muller, Albert Muller has often told people, uh, your desire for sexual intimacy will either lead you to sin or it'll lead you to marriage. And you have to decide which, which it's going to be. And I think we, we need to recover that in our day when we see a lot of people not putting intentionality into their pursuit of marriage, but kind of letting it go as if something that could happen someday, maybe, and yet they find their singleness to be a source of sin, a source of temptation, a source of, of sexual immorality in various ways through what they view, through what they do, through who they spend time with. Um, that sort of thing. Marriage was created by God as, as, uh, as the proper outlet for that energy, for that desire. Um, and it's not wrong to feel that desire. It's wrong to use it in the wrong ways. It's wrong to exhibit it in the wrong ways. In marriage, the Christian man and woman can transpose their physical pleasure into spiritual worship. The very, the very act of the enjoyment of the wife or of the spouse or of, of the husband, of the wife or the husband, is meant to be uh, spiritual worship, recognizing that God gave it to us to be enjoyed uh, in the proper context. First Timothy shows us this. First Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to, to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons 
through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So that there you see um, sex and food, two great idols in our day, are they not? They're, the culture puts those forward as being the ultimate experiences. Pursue sexuality, pursue food, pursue leisure. But yet Paul says they're good. They're to be received with thanksgiving by us, by those of us who know and believe the truth, who, who enjoy them in their right context and don't elevate them to, to, to the level of God. Luther in his day, in his Luther was good at being blunt and saying exactly what was on his mind. Martin Luther said this, If the Pope brought no other calamity than the prohibition of marriage, it would be sufficient to stamp him as the Antichrist. So that's Martin, Martin's opinion for you. Um, companionship, the third, the third benefit or the purpose of marriage. Uh, companionship is, is fostered in marriage on a level that is much higher than the level of your same-sex friendships prior to marriage. I think a lot of us can relate to the experience of having uh, guy friends or girlfriends, same-sex friends, and then moving into a marriage relationship and finding that the, that the level of con- connectivity is, is, is much higher. Particularly for guys, they, they can find it to be almost, almost suffocating the first couple of years of, of the level of emotional intimacy required by their wives. Um, and, and called forth by their wives and inevitably called forth just by having someone be that close to you. But that's good for, for you, especially for guys to, to, to have that experience. Mar- marriage fosters sanctification since the level of intimacy is required is so high. The ability to hide things is, is, is not there. And our sinfulness becomes inevitably evident. It's not uncommon to, to get married and in your first year start to realize, oh, there's all this, this sin that I didn't know I had. I'm becoming much worse. My sanctification must be slipping, right? I just got married in the first year. We're finding all these things that we don't agree with and we don't, don't get along with them. This issue, this issue, that issue. And you think your sanctification is slipping, but actually all that's happened is you've become aware of things that were already there. They just were dormant and no one was close enough to you to see them and to call them for what they are. The flip side of it is without that wife or husband, you wouldn't have that person to help you see those things. So we see the benefit of marriage as an instrument of sanctification in becoming more like Christ individually and together. So uh, that happens in marriage. That's God's intention that it happens in marriage. Somebody who wakes up in your own bed knows a lot more about your sinfulness than a roommate, as valuable as roommates are. Uh, Quickly looking back on Ephesians, we see indicatives and imperatives in Ephesians. We see things that we're commanded to do, and we see things that God states as realities. He tells wives to submit to their husbands. That's an imperative. That's a command. But why does he give that command? He gives that command based on an indicative, based on some reality that he's declaring. He says, because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He doesn't say, I would really like it if the husbands would become the heads of their wives. He doesn't say that. He says the husband is the head of his wife, whether he wants to be or not, whether he does a good job or is a bad job. And there's plenty of husbands that do good jobs and some that don't do good jobs. But if they do a good job, their whole family is blessed. 
And if they do, if they abdicate their role, if they are passive in that, if they, if their, if their version of, of being with their wife and kids is just to be alone and watch the television, let them do what they want and be left totally to himself, the whole family feels the effects of that abdication. His role is inescapable. His role as a head is, is not avoidable. He'll either, he'll either rise to the challenge and bless those around him, or he won't rise to the challenge and everybody else will suffer as a result. He is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That's the tall order that he's given. And that, and that makes him grow in his sanctification. And the process of having to submit to an imperfect head causes a wife to rise in her sanctification. It doesn't mean that a wife can't speak her mind. Uh, her submission to her husband is secondary to her submission to Christ. It does mean that her actions and her manner reflect an affirmation of his God-given role and the, uh, a desire for him to do it well and desire to help him do it well, even if that means a broken-hearted uh, uh, longing that he renounce sin and be the head that, that God calls him to be. In our sinfulness, both husbands and wives err on occasion being too domineering or too passive. Either one is a mistake and either one is a sin. But the point is that God sanctifies us through our trials and through our failures that inevitably accompany marriage and child raising. And I want to want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the delay of marriage in our day. Uh, it may not be a big, as big an effect in Bakersfield. I, I was in Oakland and Berkeley, San Francisco area for a number of years, now near Los Angeles and Riverside area. It's much more common where I'm at. But statistically speaking, uh, it's a big issue nowadays. It's been, it's been reported in secular media and Christian media and, and at large. The number of marriages per year is on average about 50% of what it was 30 years ago. So that means about every year, 50% fewer people are marrying than married 30 years ago. And the population's not going down. It's not that we're losing people to you know, war or pestilence. It's that people are just choosing not to, to marry or to delay marriage uh, longer. There's a societal shift in this, in this area of marriage, and, and uh, we need to think about what's caused it and how it's affecting us. Uh, some of it is not necessarily sinful. For example, pursuing college or pursuing graduate school. That's increasingly common in our day because of the economic factors, right? A hundred years ago, most jobs were land-based or agrarian in nature. Today, more and more jobs, the higher percentage of jobs and, the higher, and high-paying jobs are found in areas that require certain knowledge or specialization, accounting, law, medicine, business. All these things require more and more information. And even, even degrees that used to take four years now take five or six. More and more people are doing continuing education, going back to get specialization in, in this or that that's related to their field. So the, the, the waiting until you're a little more stable economically to marry is not necessarily wrong. Uh, we have to watch if we're being impacted by the culture uh, beyond what is, is, is wise in this sense. Uh, the, world will, the world markets singles in a way they don't market married people. Most entertainment is, is uh, marketed towards 18 to 35-year-olds, particularly the unmarried, because they generally, on, on a proportion basis, spend more money on movies and games. Uh, this is known. And a lot of it's also now marketed towards younger and younger children because it's cooler to be a teenager at a younger age. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed the trend in clothing to nine-year-olds, especially girls, to dress a certain way that is supposedly 
provocative in 15-year-olds and attractive. So they're marketing it to lower ages, this image of being young, attractive, carefree, independent. This is a marketing image that we receive all the time. The average age of a video game player in 1990 was 18 years old. The average age today is 30. That's the average age of people who play, play video games. That did not come by accident. That came at the profit of companies that produced those products. So realize that we are on the receiving end of bombardment to live and think a certain way about ourselves and about our time. More adults today watch the Cartoon Network than watch network news or CNN. <laughs> it's a, a fact. Um, nearly 25% of American men up to the age of 30 have never left their mother's home. So there is a certain delay of adolescence that we're seeing in our day, and it's connected with the delay of marriage. Now, it's all come together. I mean, some of it is, okay, so people need to go to school for longer, but we also get bombarded by a message about what it means to be young, and it's very tempting to want to just stay young forever. So we, as, we, as we think about the world's messages, we have to have a biblical framework to separate those things which are amoral, which are neither right nor wrong. Going to college is amoral. Whether you do it or not is not a sin or, or virtuous necessarily. With things that are, are not helpful spiritually. Delayed adolescence is a plague on our culture. It's a plague in our church uh, today. We see it marketed. We see it uh, recognized in films like Hollywood made a movie called Failure to Launch. It's marketing this image of someone who never really got together, never really got out and did anything. And this is laughed about and, and uh, again, encouraged because those people generally spend a lot of money. Um, anyway, in former days, singleness on the part of adults was very rare, except in cases where young men were pursuing apprenticeships in order to have financial stability in order to marry. And in those cases... They've generally lived at home or with their tutor or master, and they looked forward to marriage as a rite of passage. So in older days, when people did wait to marry, they waited with a sense of anticipation or longing, and marriage was viewed as a good thing. Today, the image is generally the reverse. Marriage is seen as the last thing you do when you're done having all the fun you can possibly get. Then you get married. That's the, the idea. Um, and many singles have bought into that notion and, and to their own detriment. Today we have the majority of American women live without a husband and married couples are in the minority of all American households. So this is out there. I won't belabor that point too much. Uh, It's probably also driven by a greater percentage of young adults who come from divorced parents. Today's young adult, 22, 23, a lot of them were raised in divorced homes in a way that those of you who are maybe 50 or 60 weren't raised as percentage-wise from homes like that. So we're seeing the generation of the, of, that has come from divorced homes now being more skittish about the prospect of marriage. And the cohabitation rates are rising in our day uh, considerably as our children out of wedlock. That's even become fashionable. There's even movies about that, about how that's a good thing. 40% of all childbirths now across the races, not just minorities, across the races are out of wedlock. And 60%, this really concerned me when I saw it the other day, 60% of all high schoolers think that's a good idea. 60% of high school seniors in a national survey thought it was a good or very good idea to have a child and not necessarily be, not, not be married. 
So this is going to influence Christian circles. We'd be foolish to think that this doesn't influence people in this room or people that we know in our families. Uh, one last thing that's risen in light of these trends is this, is the, a part, especially in the part of singles, is this concept of a soulmate to find the idea, the idea that I can't get married until I find that one absolutely right person. It's increasingly common today, in part because we have such a fractured society. We live in a society that's very mobile. Life is very fast-paced. It, it can be hard to establish deep friendships and have roots. So we, we're finding that Americans increasingly look towards a spouse as being the be-all and end-all of their emotional satisfaction. Again, we have this, this, this desire for emotional fulfillment raised to a high level. Right, raised, raised to the primary level, such that people don't want to have children or they don't want to marry until they find just that perfect person. And what inevitably happens is they'll meet somebody, get to know them for a while, think they are the one, find a few flaws in them, decide they must not be the one, better break that off, start with someone else. The same process repeats itself, right? You get to know them, you find some faults, they must not be the one, you move on. That happens uh, a lot. And part of it is this idea that God's will is only one particular person. That's, that's not the case. God's will is that we marry Christians with whom we can love and serve God better than we each could separately. Uh, we'll talk about that more in the Q&A, perhaps. Uh, but this, this notion that God's will is so specific to my marital partner that I must find this one right person is crippling. And it causes people to break up with no apparent reason other than that you found some things about them that you didn't like as much. Well, everyone else is going to have those too. Well, the more you know somebody, the more likely you are to see their faults. And if you are afraid of marrying someone that's imperfect, you're never going to get married. And that's, that's part of what's happening. Um, actually, the, the divorce rate has actually been coming down in recent years, but it's not really good news because what's happening is that all it is, it's cohabitation rate is, is accounting for it. In other words, people are not, instead of getting married and getting divorced, they're, getting, they're living together and then breaking up after they don't get along anymore. So we're still seeing marriage as an institution uh, be, be, be more difficult for people. Uh, and what this means is that for singles in our day, the pressures are much higher than they were 20 or even 10 years ago. The pressures of how to be a godly and holy single are demanding. They are, they are multifaceted. They come from all angles. I was a single for a while in Berkeley, and I can tell you there are temptations from every conceivable angle. Uh, we, we need to hold a few things in tension as we think about singleness in our day and, and the goodness of marriage. Uh, I know there are singles who want to marry and who are faithfully serving Christ as singles. I'm not here to heap guilt on you or to tell you that you're somehow abnormal and that something's wrong with you. That's not at all my intention. I am saying that historically speaking, marriage is the common experience for adults and we should associate all our romantic interests with marriage. Marriage is the place where God has ordained it to exist and be beautiful. And marriage is a place of sanctification whereby we grow into Christ-likeness. And unless we're gifted for singleness, unless we're gifted to stay celibate long-term, we're going to miss out on those blessings without pursuing marriage. So here's the biblical tension in the last few minutes that I want to unpack a couple of tensions for you. It doesn't, on the one hand, single adult Christians are to be loved and not pitied. They're to be accepted and not rejected, included and not excluded. And we shouldn't heap shame on them. Uh, A lot of studies out there that talk about singles don't go to churches in proportion to married people. About 50% of society in adult 
adults are single. About 50% of people over 18 today are single. Yet their church attendance is a lot less than 50%. So why is that? A lot of people talk about that. And, and one of the arguments that's given is that churches are not as receptive to singles as they could be. So that, that, that maybe there's some truth to that on a national level, maybe. Uh, we need to do uh, the best we can to receive them, not make them feel awkward or excluded because they're not married. At the same time, we do want to help, I think particularly young men, help them discern whether or not they're gifted for celibacy. Because a lot of times in men, they're not married just because they haven't thought about it. They haven't, it hasn't occurred to them that that would be a good thing. And uh, it has occurred generally to women. All research indicates that women still want marriage and still think about it from a pretty early age. Uh, John Calvin called the gift of celibacy a special grace, this ability to remain single and celibate long-term. Uh, there is a view today, and I've read it in books, uh, a view that the, the being single is the gift of singleness. Some authors talk about this, that the, just the idea of being single, that means you, are a gift, you have the gift of singleness because you are single. After all, God is sovereign, right? right? So if you're, God's sovereign and you're single, you must have the gift of singleness. That view overemphasizes God's sovereignty at the expense of the means that God ordains. In other words, if you have a job, God ordains that you have a job because you have a job. But you must have applied for that job at some point. You must have prepared a resume, made a phone call, gone to an interview, or at least had somebody call you and say, hey, would you come here and work? So we have what we have by the grace of God, by God's sovereignty. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and attains favor from the Lord. A good wife is from the Lord. At the same time, we have to actually do it. We have to pursue it. it by, with God's help, with wisdom, pursuing it is not is not wrong, it's right, and it's what's needed to, for it to happen. Um, I know when I was uh, single, I got a lot of uh, advice from pastors that seemed as if they were almost embarrassed about the pursuit of marriage, almost as if they didn't want to talk about it. Um, I was encouraged to stay focused on the Lord, just pursue spiritual things. Don't think about marriage. God will do that when, when it's his time. Not recognizing the role that I had to play in making that happen. So I think that there is some bad advice on, on that end in some circles. It is possible to want marriage too much. Just because marriage is a good thing does not mean that it can't be an idol. I think it can be an idol. It can be an idol to people who are single. It can be an idol to people who are married. People who are married can try to make their spouse do more than, that, than the spouse can do. Uh, quote from Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Marriage. Some of us ask too much of marriage. We want to get the largest portion of our life's fulfillment from our relationship with our spouse. That's asking too much. Without a doubt, there should be moments of happiness, meaning, and a general sense of fulfillment. But my wife can't be God. I was created with a spirit that craves God. Anything less than God, and I'll feel an ache. So what he's saying there is marriage doesn't replace our relationship with God. It can become an idol for those who are married. They can want their spouse to be almost godlike to them in giving them the love and affection and respect that they long for, almost as if that, that spouse becomes functionally a god in their life. That can happen to a married person. It can happen to an unmarried person. It can happen to an unmarried person if all they do is think about, one day when I'm married, I'll be, a, I'll be finally able to, to be a Christian adult and be able to do this and that and the other thing. We can do a lot of that when we're single. We can be hospitable as singles. We can be uh, spending time with children as singles. A lot of that stuff is open to us as singles. We don't have to wait as if we're somehow on hold until we marry. At the same time, it's possible uh, to want marriage too little. If you're continually thinking about, about uh, who you want to date or get to know, 
But even after you've really gotten to know them, marriage never enters your mind. We see that today as well. We see people date for three, four years and never even talk about marriage. Well, what was the point of dating in the first place? So you, you wonder uh, when you see that happen, that's a warning sign. Um, because when you're with somebody alone, you're basically beginning a process of sexual attraction that will eventually explode if you don't get married or or get away from each other. So God made it that way. I mean, the desire for a man or a woman is a sexual desire. It'll eventually lead towards those desires coming out and being manifest. Um, and so to, to, to have a relationship that isn't marriage-oriented is a dead end. It's going to lead to, to problems. Um, on the other side, uh, we live in a fallen world, and just because you don't have the gift of celibacy doesn't mean we'll, we will get married. Uh, we, we live in a fallen world. We have to recognize that even though um, we may have desires for certain things, God may not fulfill them. At the same time, A, God will provide the grace we need, right? No temptations overcome you except that which is common to man, and with it, God will give a way of escape. If, if we are single and we don't want to be, God will provide the grace that we need. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue marriage in, in appropriate ways. Uh, we should not conclude that God has given us the grace. We should not conclude that God has not given us the grace to obey him as singles. Nor should we conclude that we should stop lawfully pursuing marriage. Nor should we pers- conclude that we have the gift of singleness long term. There's a lot of, it's a nuanced issue. If you're single and you don't want to be, God's moving in your heart to do something towards marriage, you should do those things knowing that ultimately God will give the success or not. Uh, but at the same time, it's right to pursue them. So these are the tensions we have to live with. It's the tension between being content and, and striving. A lot of Christian authors that I've met on these issues of dating, they take one extreme or the other. I've met some authors who think it's not possible to idolize marriage. Marriage is a good thing, so you cannot possibly want it too much. You just do anything possible to, to, to marry. As if Singleness were some second-class status. On the other hand, there are some authors who say contentment. Contentment is right. Contentment is right. Just be content and don't do anything towards marriage. So neither extreme is right. Paul was content as a Christian, but he was continually pressing on. And so I'll close with that as far as that tension. You can be content in your job while nevertheless pursuing a promotion or pursuing new responsibilities. The slave in Corinthians 7 was told not to worry about his slavery. Remember Corinthians 7, Paul says, if you're a slave, don't worry about it. Just keep serving your master. But what what else does Paul say? If you can get your freedom, go ahead and do it. In other words, the slave is the Lord's free man. He should be happy in in his present state, but if he can get free, he should get free. So a single who wants to marry, there's nothing sinful about pursuing marriage. It's God honoring a state. Go ahead and do it. There's plenty of good ways to pursue it. It's a good goal to have. Uh, it's a goal that you could have along with your other goals of career and other financial goals that you might set for yourself. Graduating college, having a spouse. Those are not wrong to have those two goals. A lot of times in secular schools, by the way, it's discouraged, especially in the part of women. The desire for marriage and family is discouraged in secular circles. And we should not buy into that lie either. We can balance contentment with striving. Contentment with where, where, where God has us with striving towards where we think God wants to, to, to be. And uh, there's some others, other things I'll share about the pursuit of a, of a spouse that are in my book that we'll talk about as well in the Q&A if you're interested in coming. I'll close in prayer now. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the goodness of marriage. 
I hope that I was able to make some sense of of your wisdom for it in this short message. Uh, Thank you that that the most important marriage is the one that we're already in, the marriage with your son, Jesus Christ, and that you have died to redeem us and that you are in the process of bringing us home to glory and sanctifying us. So I pray for those here, for those married, that they would live out the drama well for the world to see how Christ treats the church, how the church is to relate to Christ, husbands loving wives, wives uh, submitting to husbands. And I pray for singles here that they would uh, have a sense of who they are and what God's called them to be, whether it's long-term singleness or the pursuit of marriage and how to go about making uh, a marriage happen and that, that it's not a wrong desire to have. Help them to discern that for themselves and with the, their friends and family and their pastor here to, to be able to go about it properly and to avoid sin, but to pursue uh, a husband or wife in a way that's honoring to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Alex. Um, I want to turn to communion, uh, as I do. I want to say that, thankfully, we've, if you've noticed by the number of pregnancies and births, we don't have the problem here of people disconnecting marriage and childbearing, huh? Um, you know, I, although I do know a lot of 30-year-olds playing video games, that's of, of great concern to me. Guilty. You also don't have a pastor who discourages marriage. In fact, if I could have my own matchmaker service, I think I would enjoy that very much.